Welcome to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure, energy and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. Our guest this episode is Scott Walkham, CEO of BE Power, a strategic partner of Merrick's Capital. Merrick's Capital and BE Power bring a consortium of project developers, financiers and utility infrastructure firms together to deliver over $500 million of renewable energy infrastructure projects. So Scott's another good friend of ours at Merrick's. Um, We work together in partnership on energy projects of various sorts. Scott, I noticed on your profile when I was revisiting before, you know, you're coming up to your almost your 10 year anniversary at BE Power. Absolutely. It's probably, (laughs) probably uh, from my perspective, uh, yeah, these projects have a long gestation. So I I don't like being reminded of it too often, but uh, yeah, it's been a very enjoyable journey. Scott uh, works with us on power assets. Um, Scott and BE Power um, have the operating and maintenance contract for the solar farm and the gas-fired power plant we're building in the Darwin Catherine power grid. And Scott's also working on building a number of other mega power projects, particularly a pumped hydro project in Toowoomba, which is extremely exciting. But I think over the, the last 10 years, you know, Scott and I have looked at 25 different solar farms had the right, you know, so Scott owned and Merrick's had the right to fund and, and develop some 14 solar farms around the, the NEM and we knocked all of them back collectively because we couldn't get it to stack up. But we'll talk a bit about that today. But I think for, you know, listeners, you know, BE Power, like some of our other partners, play a critical role in our investment process. Um, Scott, although he's actually pulled it off his LinkedIn profile as well, was back in the day was a banker, but he doesn't like to talk about that. But, you know, for the last 15 years has very much been in sort of heavy industry and running a team across, you know, mining and power sectors. So, Scott, I thought we'd try and cover a couple of key things today. One, you know, just the nature of the grid, which is, you know, the power grid in this sector, in this country, um, it continues to be a contentious issue. And from your perspective, what's working and what's not? And we can talk about why we didn't fund certain solar farms and why you know, we have gone into the Darwin area. And particularly whilst it was too big for Merricks to fund because it's in excess of a billion dollars, the pumped hydro project in Toowoomba, which I've invested in myself, is a really interesting project. And I think you know, it sort of sheds a light on what is going to work and not going to work in terms of battery and, and storage. So maybe sort of kick off and you can just tell the listeners a little bit about what BE Power is doing today. Okay, thanks Adrian. Um, as you quite rightly outlined, initially BE Power was established to uh, look at the development of solar farms throughout the national electricity market, so that being the eastern seaboard of Australia. As we went through the due diligence process, um, what became clearly apparent was uh, a supply and demand dichotomy in terms of uh, the time of delivery during the 24-hour cycle of power. Also, the unquantifiable risk associated with the development of solar farms, in particular um, marginal loss factors and curtailments, which which in in reality means revenue discounts off off the output of the power plants. So I guess where we ended up, Adrian, our consensus was is that we can't quantify the risk, let alone um, price to risk in that market. So 
From there, we moved into dispatchable uh, power projects. Obviously, the Northern Territory, being a combined gas and solar, has a large dispatchable component to it. And uh, B powers with its other, other storage projects is dispatchable as well. So we purely focus on the dispatchable component of the market nowadays. So let's break that down a, l- a little bit for, for some of our investors and listeners. Dispatchable basically means the ability to control your output, unlike renewable solar and wind which is hostage to the elements and um, dispatchable which refers to you know things like gas fired power or battery power or in the sense of the big t project pumped hydro which you can turn on and off at will um, as opposed to the plethora of renewable projects and and so when you talked about the dispatchable element of it or, or intermittent element of, of solar, for instance, when we looked at all those projects, having a team of commodity traders sitting here, we always had them on our sitting, you know, like chimney cricket on our shoulder, basically saying that makes no sense. The power price is going to go to zero in the middle of the day when everyone's pumping power and then it's going to go through the roof when the sun goes down. And so we always we always struggled, right? And that was and so that kind of really sent us on a, a different path, right? And sent you on a different path in, in particular, you know, in terms of solve this problem dispatchable, moving away from coal but moving into you know, solutions where how can you provide power to the grid from four o'clock in the afternoon till eight thirty nine o'clock in the morning? And I know it's not that simple, like there'll be intermittency during the day, but maybe just give a, a sense now to to those listening, you know, how variable the power price is at the moment from the middle of the day till sort of you're comparing middle of the day versus six or seven o'clock at night yeah look the way the national electricity market works is that the price can uh, fluctuate from minus a thousand dollars which from a generation perspective is quite interesting because you actually get paid to take load from the grid um, to plus fifteen thousand five hundred dollars is the cap up until last year the average price in the grid was around seventy dollars a megawatt hour um, we've seen that rise dramatically this year to closer to 180 dollars a megawatt hour what we're seeing with with the grid as well is that obviously solar is at its peak in the middle of the day. So we're hitting low to negative prices during that, that peak maximum sunlight or maximum solar irradiation during the day. And the grid at the moment is currently tracking that it is operating at 6% of the time negative in the negative uh, market sphere. So projects such as batteries, um, lithium ion and the pumped hydro, they actually serve two purposes. The first one is that they are a load. We draw from the grid. So effectively, in the middle of the day when the prices are low to negative, we're generating or pumping. And then in the afternoon or evenings, when we're seeing prices exceed, say, $300 a megawatt hour, which is the average at the moment, we're dispatching. So effectively, what the role of a pumped hydro in the market is, is to displace this oversupply of energy in the middle of the day and dispersing it on the shoulders when when solar and, and wind aren't operating. So in other words, pump water up the hill when the solar's running and let it flow downhill through the turbines when the sun goes down. Is that simplistically right? That's simplistically right. Yes, it's a it's a giant water battery. So effectively, and the difference between, a, I, I get asked this question a lot, the difference between a lithium-ion battery and a pumped hydro, the actual inefficiency, as I call it, of the systems are both the same initially. They're both at 20%, so there's 20% losses in the system. So, for example, our Big T project, we pump for 12 hours and we discharge for 10. That The extra two hours represents the inefficiency of the system in terms of pumping uphill. 
That said, uh, pumped hydro doesn't degradate over its 80-year life, whereas batteries can degradate quite dramatically, quickly from 80 to 70%, and then thereafter it's, it's a bit of an unproven world out there in battery land at the moment. Isn't the other major issue that batteries only really run for an hour or two? There really isn't an economic solution for battery storage to run for six, seven hours? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, most batteries are sized at one or two hours. Their primary purpose is to provide grid stability and a little bit of power price arbitrage, that intraday price movement. The largest battery, largest duration battery in the world at the moment is four hours, and that's pushing the limits of, of the, the economics of, of batteries because they've got to be massively oversized to do that. Where's, um, that, where's that battery, Scott? Uh, that battery's proposed to replace the origin power plant in New South Wales. It's replacing a coal power, fire power plant. Oh, so it doesn't actually exist today? No, it it's, doesn't it's exist as proposed, yeah. yeah. So, and then, then you go into sort of the revenue generation uh, methodologies from lithium-ion batteries and pumped hydro. And um, a pumped hydro has three revenue streams. They're all about of equal size. The first is electricity arbitrage. The second is selling derivatives off the back of the asset. So selling derivatives to electricity retailers, for example, and other high energy users. And the third is providing grid stability services. Now, with respect to a battery, because they're much shorter duration, you can only avail of grid stability services and electricity arbitrage for a short period of time. Because they don't have the duration, they cannot sell derivatives into the market. So electricity arbitrage means buying cheap power in the middle of the day and selling it high when the solar turns off, in essence. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. So in a perfect world, we'd be uh, pumping or buying electricity when the price is low to negative, and then we require a delta of about $80 per megawatt hour to, uh, to hit our uh, project IRR hurdles. Currently, what we're seeing is a is a fluctu- intraday fluctuation of somewhere in the order of three dollars to $400 on average per day. Tell me, Scott, how many pumped hydro projects or big water batteries exist in Australia today? Uh, currently, uh, there are two two batteries, two water batteries, one in Queensland, one in New South Wales. And then, of course, there are two under construction, the Snowy 2.0, the nation building battery, and the Gen X Kidston uh, pumped hydro project in Queensland, which is under construction. It seems, you know, pumped hydro and hydropower is pretty old technology. Why don't we build more? Why can't we solve this this problem on the grid and, and use these big batteries to stabilise things quickly and smooth the, the power price? Uh, the, I guess the, the key differential between a battery, which is quite a quick development process, um, circa two to three years to be from permit application through to uh, to turnkey, whereas a pumped hydro project, as you're aware, Adrian, we're six and a half years into the development process with a year to run before we even start construction. The, but the key issue with respect to um, pumped hydro projects is you need a number of critical success factors for it to be uh, to be viable. The first one is you need a access to water, such as a reservoir, and a suitable geography next to it with a decent head. So we believe that you need to be looking at a, a head 
which is the differential between the lower and upper reservoir of somewhere in the order of 200 metres minimum to make them economic. So just geographically there, that's difficult to find. Secondly, you need suitable geotech because as you can imagine, if you've got, uh, say in the case of the pumped hydro, we've got seven gigalitres of water sitting on top of the hill in a, in a reservoir that we're constructing of 60 hectares in size and 45 metres deep. So there is substantial weight on top of the hill that needs to be uh, handled from a geotech perspective. Uh, the third aspect is you need a uh, clear access to a high transmission line and preferably a, a short route. In the case of GenX, they're actually constructing a 180 kilometres of high transmission line and so forth um, to, to take it through to market. And the third is that you, the fourth is you need a market. You need a load, a demand for it. Otherwise, they're pretty much wasted electrons and you lose a lot of your output in, in marginal loss factors and so forth. So they're, they're the critical aspects of it. And I guess to put the big T into context, it, it, it ticks all the boxes with, re, with respect to the critical success factors. And that's why it is about the same development capital cost as the Kidston project, but it is twice the size of the Kidston project. So the Kidston project is Gen X. Gen X's project and is located in northern Queensland. Is that right? Yeah, in the old Kidston gold mine? Yes, far north Queensland, yes. So we've got lots of mines in Australia. One of the the historical benefits of the mining sector, can we not find a bunch of mines all around the place to create more batteries effectively? Yeah, look, absolutely. It's it's a it's a good solution for those disused mines. Um, the issue always comes back to sufficient head, the location with respect to uh, connection to the grid, and there's some more subtleties around the geotech with a lot of the mines, um, such as you know gold mines have a high sulphur contact by their nature. So you add water to it, it becomes quite acidic, that that can detrimentally impact the performance of the plant over time, of course. Interesting. So one one of the things that you know, we spend our life discussing is you know should we finance one project or, or another? And um, BE Power has been a essential resource for us at Merricks to review projects and and look at them. In terms of the the Darwin market, you know when we looked at that project and you brought that to us, and that that is actually the only private equity investment that Merricks has is the MC Power solar farm and gas fired power plant in Darwin. What made Darwin different to the NEM that you felt it was attractive? Um, look, I see the Darwin being an islander grid. It's not part of the national electricity market as a very interesting market for a small, a relatively small investment um, can provide the ability to, in the future, control that market when it becomes a non-bilateral floating market. With respect to the market up there, it's 300 megawatts. I think with, with what uh, Merrick's Capital built there with 20. Uh, four megawatts as a stage one. It gives them and their offtake partner um, tremendous pricing power going forward in that market compared to um, marketing in the in the uh, NEM generally. I also believe that um, with time, as more and more renewables hit that market, that that gas power plant um, will become increasingly more relevant to the market in terms of the ability to provide electricity outside daylight hours and in particular during the wet season when the solar radiation levels are low. Yeah, as as we know well, it's been a, a challenge getting those plants connected. It's been a much slower process than we expected with 
four solar farms having been built in the Darwin Catherine area, or six including the the airport and the defence base. It's a slow process. So it's sort of you know we've seen firsthand how hard it is to bring renewable plants on. I, I mean I can clearly see the incumbency or the position in the market. And once they're up and running, which we've now built them and we're going through the grid connection, once you're up and running, they're going to be hard to replace because I'm not sure that I would go and do what we've done again, you know, as a, as a rational investor or financier, building solar farms um, on lots of different grids. It's a real challenge. And you said at the beginning, it's a, it's a high risk, but also building, I think, even more efficient gas-fired power plants, which, you know, our, our power plant will use 25 to 30% less carbon than the existing gas-fired power plant. So we're certainly moving the needle between solar and gas to a, a lower carbon footprint. But even then, you know, trying to, the planning and certainty around getting grid connection, it's, it's taken a year longer than we thought. Um, and yes, we can see incre- increasingly more value by having something that others wouldn't go and do or we wouldn't go and do again in the same way because of that, um, it certainly adds value, but it certainly creates a problem that, you know, a lack of investment. You know, there's so much noise in the press every day about power and the power sector, but actually the solution to it, you know, it's really hard to see how you encourage a lot of investment. I, I can see if batteries work, you know, we'd all want to own a battery um, if they could, you know, run for longer, but certainly want to own a, a pumped hydro project, which it's hard to see that being replaced by batteries anytime soon. Yeah, look, absolutely. And ultimately, in the NEM, for example, it's it's going to be a combination of technologies that provide the solution. We ran the calculation um, up in Queensland in terms of what is the energy displacement or battery requirement for the Queensland government to achieve their objectives of 50% renewables by 2030. So when we talk about achieving an objective, it's not super building out a lot of wind and solar to uh, achieve that objective, you need to achieve it on a firm basis. And by firm, I mean electricity 24-7. So we worked out that we the Queensland government need to build 12 more equivalent big T projects in Queensland just to achieve that objective. Um, so it's certainly the place to be right now with respect to pumped hydro. I guess with respect to the NT as well is that there there is no wind resource up there. It's either cyclonic or it's nil um, so there's no wind farms up there so the the system is um, relying heavily on on rooftop solar which is which is causing issues within the grid up there which has caused us the problems that we've faced um, as you're aware Adrian with respect to the grid connection and also unfortunately with respect to the process as well is that between ourselves and the other developer up there the other significant developer that owns the three other solar farms any is that we, we're sort of leading the frame with respect to the new standards and how we have to comply and things. So there's there's a there's a fair bit of uh, R&D going on within the regulation, within the operation and the operation of the grid up there. So, yeah, that's unfortunate. But as you say, I, I, I think that there will be a position of incumbency coming, coming to us in the not-too-distant future with respect to those assets. Yeah, no doubt looks that way. Uh, I sometimes wonder whether that's, you know, it's hope or whether, you know, it's, it's, it's a clear strategy that we, we went into this with and certainly I think it's, it's going to end up that way. Um, but there just seems to be, you know, there's always this sort of rolling uncertainty. And certainly at, at Merricks, as you know, we're, we're attracted to funding where there's capital dislocation um, and energy, 
you know, at this point in time really is a you know, massively dislocated space with you know, the biggest players in the in the country, such as AGL or Origin, you know, different arguments whether they're investment grade or sub-investment grade at, at this point in time. But if the biggest you know, are struggling to get funded for a whole range of reasons from you know, ESG rationale through to the certainty of their earnings, creditworthiness, etc. There's certainly a big gap. So one of the you know, one of the areas that we've been hunting for with you is for behind the meter power production. Can you talk to that a little bit? Explain what, what that means and what we're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the the behind the meter effectively is taking load users off the grid and then then becoming partially or preferably fully self self-powered. Um, the benefits to the to the power consumer by having them behind the meter is quite simply that they avoid two thirds of the cost of the current electricity bill. So your electricity bill roughly is one third wholesale electricity price, one third poles and wires pricing, and one third retail and other fees, including all of the government rebates, which end up flowing through to the retailer anyway. So by getting behind the meter um, has a very strong economic imperative for for users from a price perspective as they're avoiding two-thirds of their electricity bill. And certainty for the producer, right? Certainty, so you know where your power is going, you don't have to push it through the grid. Yeah, um, absolutely. Don't have to deal with many of the issues we're discussing. So are you seeing that as an ongoing emerging trend across Australia and elsewhere? Yeah, look, absolutely. This this behind the meter, whether it's a residential home with a feed-in tariff, which is causing a lot of issues within the grid, to be honest, because of the, the dislocation of the market with respect to the feed-in tariff and the actual price. But um, yes, it's a it's a very much an involving part of the business. Currently, at times, there's nearly 40% of the electricity provided to the grid in Queensland comes from rooftop solar. So not only are they powering themselves, but they're also contributing substantially to the grid as well at that time. And then the other evolution that we're seeing in the market is very much the focus of our second pumped hydro we have in Queensland, um, the Big G, is that we're working on a firm renewable contract for a large counterparty to meet their ESG requirements. So what they want is a 100% renewable power purchase agreement for 800 megawatts. So to to achieve that, you need the combination of a very large water battery, such as pumped hydro, plus a whole lot of wind and solar combined together, wrapped into one firm block PPA. So we've seen the evolution of that as these, um, particularly the large corporates, are seeking to uh, become um, positive to the climate. The big G, that's Gladstone? That is Gladstone, yes. Yes, so we're just in there. So lots of industrial load. I mean, Gladstone's an interesting area, obviously. It, Gladstone exports a huge amount of molecules in LNG, and, and there's a lot of molecules turned into the likes of bauxite aluminium in that area. Um, there's, there's obviously a lot going on that consumes traditional power so clearly there's massive need in the space. Absolutely and also there's another aspect with those uh, high carbon emission counterparties in that they save their carbon costs so there is a saving in excess of $100 million for this particular counterparty in uh, carbon credits that they have to acquire per annum by entering into that hedge so there's that adds another in, incredibly interesting facet to the market and then with respect to say the large 
LNG plants, they're incredible consumers of energy themselves. Like their huge internal loads are obviously burning their own gas, but we're in discussion with them to actually turn them green as well. So they'll push more gas out in, into the system, um, both domestically and export, and rely on you know the green energy to uh, support their power plants in lieu of what they're currently doing. And just to reiterate, so when you talk about green energy, you're talking about solar and wind powering some of this industrial use during the the day or when the wind blows in the case of wind. And when it's not blowing, you turn on the pumped hydro battery. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. Doesn't seem that difficult, does it, when we, we talk about it? But tell us a little bit about, you know, the size of Big T, for instance, just there's some of the, the dollars we're talking about for, for stage one and some of the partners involved. Yeah, look, um, B Power's partnered with GE Renewable Energy. That's a long-standing relationship of, of mine from the mining days. And the other partner is uh, Bechtel the global infrastructure provider. So Bechtel have constructed 50 hydro dams across the world and um, are currently constructing a pumped hydro project in Scotland. So there's a lot of technical expertise and capability across the across the team. With respect to the Big T, initially we had it at 400 megawatts by 12 hours. We've extended it a little bit in terms of the duration that it's operating. In working with the, uh, with the off-taker for that project, which I cannot mention at the moment, we've doubled the size of that to 800 megawatts over 12 hours um, with the capacity to further increase it as well. In terms of the new the numerical dollar value of the project, it's in the order of $3 billion. For those of you that, that couldn't see me, I'm on a video with Scott also. I was kind of reeling at the cost. It's It grows all the time, the cost of everything. And I understand it's much bigger, but it's a big number, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the Big T is the lowest cost per megawatt power plant in the country by quite a significant margin presently. With the economies of scale and the the better head and the shorter distance between the upper and lower reservoirs for the Big G, it's actually ended up even cheaper than that. So, yeah, it's very cost-effective power and we're looking at um, providing a very, very competitive offtake combining wind, solar and and the pumped hydro to, to the counterparty. And another interesting facet of the project is that we're building a private line as opposed to connecting to the grid. So we'll have our own private line and we're going to run a piece of that as direct current. So normal transmission lines are AC or alternating current, but generators generally generate in direct current and then the off-taker also has a requirement for direct current. So I guess to put that in a simple fashion is that direct current at the power plant's converted to AC, DC to AC, goes down the line, then gets converted to AC to DC. So there are incredible losses and savings to be had by building our own private line with a with a DC, which will be the first in this country. How long will that DC be? Uh, 55 kilometres. Right. And I ask the question, obviously having investments um, in that Darwin region, we watch with interest the proposed Sun Cable development, which is you know, $30 billion plus development of three gigawatts of solar panels in the middle of the desert near Tennant Creek with a proposal to run a direct cable or a DC as you're describing it all the way through to Singapore, which don't hold me to these numbers, but I think it's over 3,000 kilometres. So it's kind of interesting. You're looking at 50 kilometres there, looking at an enorm- you know, something much bigger than what you're talking about, you know, many times the size, and running at 3,000 case. What What's your feeling as you become familiar with 50 kilometres of, of DC cabling? 
what do you think the marginal loss factor is to Singapore? We're not experts in it, but it's. I think there's a lot of conjecture around it. Um, Bechtel are actually involved in that project, which so we have some interesting insights with that. The the losses are very significant. The benefits to it is is that there's time differences in terms of sunlight hours and so forth. So it will be delivering at peak time, you know, from four o'clock onwards into Singapore. But um, I think you're going to be looking well in north, well north of twenty percent losses through that system, even with the big boosters that they have to have through there. One thing about DC though, it is much more efficient than AC in terms of uh, losses and so forth. But they are significant over that journey. It'll be interesting to see how that project evolves because obviously a, a massive piece of any country with respect to their electricity is energy security. And, um, you know, I question a cable going through Indonesian waters and so forth like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not certain of the merits of it. And as we saw, Adrian, with BassLink, the cable between Tasmania and Victoria, when it went down, it took them nearly a year to find the fault in that cable so they could repair it. So... I, I presume they're applying some new technology with respect to these undersea cables so that they can identify and remedy faults. And correct me if I'm wrong for calling you out, but was BassLink not DC? Is that not a direct current cable? BassLink is a DC, yes. Okay. I thought yours was the first. Sorry to call you out. Were you saying first on land? No, no, first, first transmission on, on, on land. All right. Yeah, okay. yeah. DC, high transmission... Um, lines on land, very common in China, for example. They're the most efficient means of um, drawing asynchronous generation from vast distances. And I think part of what the grid needs, going back to your initial comments, in Australia, they've done a good job. You know, they've established renewable energy zones. That's occurred since we first started looking, Adrian, which I think is a great concept. Then they need to strengthen the grid. But a big part of it, I believe, is that they need to look at DC as an um, alternative to the current AC that they're proposing. I, I really do believe that's incredibly important to have a, a, an efficient grid into the future. Well, there's certainly going to be a lot of investment in the sector. We need it, right? It's the only way we're going to get the power price down, stable power delivered, particularly if we're going to meet those renewable targets, which clearly I think with the, you know, the governments in power today and, and the general will seemingly of, of most people, that's where we're going. Um, so it's a huge investment. And so you know, we, we obviously combined be power merits, you know, hunting for different areas to finance. You know, a big part of our focus is obviously lending. We've lent small amounts to certain sectors, you know, the parts of the power sector, but because of the uncertainty that you've mentioned, we haven't yet found the opportunities, but we continue to hunt. We've obviously made some investment in Darwin, and, and whilst in hindsight I wish we'd uh, invested a lot more in the, the big T because it looks like a cracking project, we're on the hunt. Just maybe one sort of last thought piece before we, we wrap up. I think, you know, we're looking at some waste-to-energy projects which are effectively behind the meter. Do you have sort of a a sense or a view on waste to energy and and different forms of of energy outside of solar, wind, and obviously the traditional gas and and the like, particularly the hydrogen? Oh, look, hydrogen... I really struggle with. I have for a long time in terms of the underlying economics. It's obviously flavour of the month at the moment, but we're starting to see once the rubber hits the road that they're struggling to get those hydrogen projects bankable. So we're doing a lot of work in that space at the moment, trying to understand that industry. Um, you know, fundamentally, 
to create hydrogen from a group in any form, it, it takes more energy to create the energy, the hydrogen molecule. So substantially more energy is involved in the creation of it than it actually delivers at the end. So there's a there's a fundamental disconnect there, and I, I'm, I'm certain there'll be there'll be discrete markets for it, but I can't see it replacing LNG, for example, in any hurry. With respect to waste to energy, we've, we've had a look at a lot of waste to energy plants. I was particularly interested around abattoirs and so forth that have a lot of gas waste. So they've got a lot of settling ponds and capturing gas, um, and they have a large heat requirement in their processing. So there was a very good economic case for those style of projects. The broader waste to energy projects that we've looked at effectively, we, we looked at one just recently, actually, and effectively the fundamental uh, revenue earner for that was the gate fee, so being paid to take the waste, and then whatever energy you generate out the back end was was an add-on. The the Without the gate fee, though, they, they didn't stack, stack up economically. And then you have the old dichotomy of you need to have a... To make these projects economic, you need a long-term feedstock, being the waste, and then you need a long-term offtake on the other side. So they're actually quite tricky to get up. They are, they are, and getting EPA approval and and the like is is no easy process. Um, as you know, we're we're going through some deep DD on, um, well, that's due diligence on a fairly significant waste to energy project in Melbourne in Laverton. Yeah, got EPA approvals. We really like the project, but the truth is the economics of the project doesn't really rely on selling energy. That's sort of a byproduct. It's the fact that waste in Melbourne, so municipal waste has gone from um, costing $20 a tonne, now approaching $200 a tonne to you know, discharge or the gate fee as you. So it's really where are we going to put our waste? You can't put it on a barge and send it overseas. There's a pullback in tips and, and filling holes. So we're really excited by the concept of some of this waste to energy because it at gasification level, so at super high temperatures, the carbon footprint's really low and it, it seems like a, a really good opportunity where not only at, at that $200 a tonne gate fee do these things make lots of money, but it solves a, a big need for local councils to get rid of that gate, to get rid of that waste, but also the carbon footprint's really low. So it seems to tick a lot of boxes at the moment, but so did solar when we first started looking them together nine years ago. I guess we'll we'll keep working working through and and see what we can what we can come up with. But it's certainly an interesting sector, and I think it's you know we're we're putting collectively a lot of resources to work. And I think you know you've looked like you've cracked the nut with the big T, hopefully, which is I think of major importance to Southeast Queensland. But um, you know we'll keep looking for other things to to finance. So. Thanks uh, for your time today, Scott, and thanks for your ongoing partnership. Really enjoy working with you, but uh, thanks for your time today. No, no, thank you, Adrian, and we really appreciate and value our partnership with Merrick's Capital. Thank you very much. Merrick's Capital is an Australian fund manager delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merrick's Capital, head to www.merrickscapital.com.